Welcome to the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, a ministry of Locust Hill Baptist Church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. My name is Michael Hodge, Senior Pastor at Locust Hill. At Locust Hill, we celebrate the change that God alone could bring in our lives, and we also recognize the calling to share that good news with others. Lives changed by Christ, changing lives by Christ. We welcome you to this podcast where we want to equip you to live in the reality of a life changed by Christ. Disciple-making is at the core of a church's calling, and we want to take advantage of every resource we can to encourage you today. We invite you to join us for a service Sundays at 10.15 a.m., Wednesdays 6.30 p.m. Our church is located at 5534 Locust Hill Road in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Our website is locusthillchurch.org. I want to welcome you to the final episode of our Gentle and Lowly series. I know our staff is maybe on the verge of applause. Maybe you that are listening are applauding as well. Our staff has faithfully gathered around the table for somewhere around 14 episodes. So we've enjoyed some great conversations. I think we've gathered a lot from our conversations. And our prayer is that at least one person, hopefully many more, will continue to benefit from these recordings, these shared conversations. And so what kicked off this journey? For over a year now, our staff has gathered together to reflect on a number of great resources. Earlier in the year, we reflected on Paul Miller's book, A Praying Church. And then as we considered what resource we'd look at next, we chose Gentle and Lowly. And in these final two chapters, we really have an opportunity to reflect back on so many of the principles, the ideas that Dane Ortland shared throughout the book. So for those that are listening, these last two chapters will really capture the heart of the message that Dane Ortland shares in the book. And so Jason, I'll share it and I'll give it to you to kick off the conversation. First question. So chapter 22, the next to last chapter uh, is titled To the End, and it references John 13, 1, which reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so, Will, I'd love for you to put John 13, 1 for our listening audience into your own words and uh, and answer the question, what is John telling us about who Jesus is? Well, if you know, I get hyper-focused on like a certain section of uh, a quote or a set of scripture or whatever it is. And this one was, he loved them to the end. Um, and that's really where I got focused in on as I was as I was reading, as I was thinking, because I compared it to our kind of love and our love is limited. You know, like those old uh, when you were young, you had those um, fruit roll ups, and you know, they were only for like a certain amount of time and they really wasn't satisfying. See, Jesus love is not like that at all. Jesus loved us despite his betrayal, despite him being forsaken. But more than that, he, he loved us all the way to the cross. And it made me think, I think that this also speaks to like the eternal love of Jesus. Because who can measure the end of eternity and who can measure the end of Jesus? Yeah, it's one of those verses you'd fly right past that ending there. Yeah. To the end, till the end. Mm-hmm. And I love how Portland pulls that in, just emphasizing the, the, his love that goes to the cross. That, uh, it's, it's that relentless kind of love that right. just doesn't give up and doesn't quit. Yeah. So Tracy will pull you in then the 
section here from page 197, 198. When you think about the love of Christ, do you find yourself believing that Christ loved you most at the point of your conversion, but that his love slowly powers down as you move through life, failing him time after time? Is this thinking accurate? Um, I don't think we truly believe that, but I think we're guilty of thinking that at right. times. Um, and most of that, I think, is because we're looking through a filter of our human experiences and how we love and how people love us and their disappointments and um, that kind of thing. So um, it's not accurate, even though we're guilty of it. He loves us the same before, at that time, after that time, and regardless of how much we mess up. That is the grace. And I think this is one of those points reiterated all throughout the book, you know, that we view God's love as a fickle love. Well, he loves me right now because I'm doing really good. But then when I mess up, he's really disappointed in me. And yet his love is unfailing, that relentless love, like Will, you said. When we think about the love of Christ, too, a lot of people point to the cross as a great symbol of that love. And, um, and Michael, I would just love to hear from you in your work, what happened at the cross of Christ? In other words, can can you really explain to us and even to our audience what Jesus, what it was that Jesus bore on the cross for those of us who claim to be the beneficiaries of that? Yeah, in our life group, you know, we're at December now, and yet our material is going through Mark, and so we were looking at the cross this past week in our discussion. In Mark chapter 15, the description of the speedy trial and the beatings of Christ and the crucifixion, his death, his burial. And it really just amazed me. We spent some time looking at all of the details in Mark's gospel of the agony that Christ endured for us. And it's just shocking to see how he was treated and it was for us. He took our wrath. You know, the wrath that was really what we deserve. We see that in Mark 15. And, and so, as Ortland pointed out, the physical aspect of the cross would have been excruciating. That's at the heart of that word, excruciating, cross. But greater than the physical reality is the spiritual reality. And so, uh, I want to pull in a, another resource here. The staff's going to eye roll here. Another book! Oh, dear. Uh, but I was just reading The Freedom of a Christian, Martin Luther, written in 1520. So it's been a few years since he released this one. But when I was reading this, this is what he's describing, what Christ accomplished for us. I want to pull in a quick quote from that. It says, when you grasp this, and he's saying, no unrighteous, not even one. When you grasp that, you will know the necessity of Christ who suffered and rose again for you. Believing in him, you become a new person one whose sins are forgiven, and one who is justified by the merits of another, namely Christ alone. It is only possible for this faith to rule in the inner person, as Paul says in Romans 10.10, for one believes with the heart, and so is justified. Since we are justified by faith alone, it is clear that, and here's the key statement, the inner person cannot be justified, freed, or saved by any external work or act. And such works, whatever they may be, had nothing to do with the inner person. It follows that it ought to be the primary goal of every Christian to put aside confidence in works and grow stronger in the belief that we are saved by faith alone. So what is the cross? It's our salvation. It's faith alone in what Christ accomplished for us. And so tied in with that, the next question for Katina, D.B. Warfield, a quote here, 
when he said that Jesus died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart. So what would you share about that? Well, Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that means every sin that had ever been committed or was going to be committed was laid on Jesus. And we know that God cannot be around sin. So that means that God had to separate himself from Jesus. And Jesus was fully man, but had to endure all of our sin. And that's why it says um, in Luke twenty-two forty-four that um, he was sweating blood just from the thought of being abandoned by his by God, because as it says, Ortland says, um, when a communion with God had been one's oxygen, <clears throat> one's meat and drink throughout one's whole life, without a single moment of interruption by sin, to suddenly bear the unspeakable weight of all of our sins. Who could survive that? I mean, I know how upset I get myself when I've sinned and I know, oh, how could I do that? You know, God's in me. How can I do that? And how it will burden me, you know, at times. And, you know, you pray and you ask God, please forgive me, you know. But you still are burdened to know that you did whatever it was, if it was a thought or if it was a deed or whatever. But he had to suffer and feel everything. So, I mean, just the burden that was on him, I can see that, yes, he was physically beaten up, but his heart was broken because he could feel all of what we had all done. Every sin that he never committed right. was placed on placed him. On him. Yeah. So right. there's nothing that separates us from his love because he bore that completely on the cross. And so with that picture of his love for us, the key verse from John 13, 1 tells us, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And so, Amanda, how is the cross then proof that Jesus set his heart to love us? So in this chapter, I like how Bunyan stated that it is common for equals to love and for superiors to be beloved. But for Jesus to love man, this is amazing. Jesus has set his love toward sinners, enemies, the unclean, and he did so willingly, knowing all that he was sacrificing for those he loved. Despite who we are, he set his heart to love us all the way to his last dying breath on the cross. And wrapping up the chapter, then Portland writes, If you are his, heaven and relief is coming, for you cannot be made unhis. And that goes back to the quote that I pulled in with Martin Luther. If I'm depending on my works, then I can be made unhis because my works may excel at one point and then I fall short. Then I excel, then I fall short. But I can't be made unhis because it wasn't my works that brought my salvation to be. It's all what Christ accomplished. And so leading into the final chapter then, the title is Buried in His Heart Forevermore. The key passage is Ephesians 2. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. So he's going to spend quite a bit of time in this chapter focusing on those key words, grace and kindness. And so beginning this section, the question is this. What's the meaning of everything? What's the aim, the reason and goal for our small, ordinary lives? 
we're on solid footing, both biblically and historically, if we answer to glorify God. And so, Jason, I'll ask, what are some ways then we glorify God? I love how Portland says that when we live to glorify God, we function like a car running on gasoline rather than on orange juice. Um, and he says there is energy and joy, energy and joy in living for another. And so if you break that down a little further, um, the best way that we can glorify God is simply by being obedient to him, uh, being obedient to his word, his will. Uh, simply put, stop thinking that we know what's best for our lives and trust that his will and his way is higher, better, greater. Um, and the beautiful thing here is that when we live life this way uh, before God, we're not just living it before God, but we're living before others. And uh, Orland talks about that. First Peter uh, 2.12 says, keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So um, to answer that second part about what John, what does Jonathan Edwards say is one way we glorify God. I think we have to reconsider Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, where uh, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Basically, when we allow the grace and love that Jesus has to fully pour themselves out into our lives, God is glorified. I think that's what Jonathan Edwards was trying to point out there. When when Jesus gets to pour his grace and, and his mercy and his love into us, that's when God gets glorified. And so thinking about that, Ray, kind of bringing you in at this point, Jonathan Edwards places God's majesty and greatness alongside his gentleness and, and, and sweetness. What point is he trying to make here when he does that? Well, the big thing here is we have a picture of death as, as I've said before, bleak, um, dark. And the thing is, the next eternal life, I mean, for a Christian, for someone that says yes to Christ, it's a whole new exciting. It, it, you know, I, like I said, our Sunday school lesson not too long ago was, um, two weeks ago, was uh, about is hell real? And for those that are not or separated, and going back to the last chapter, it, it mentions that, that separation, that that chasm, uh, that. But this is not where it's talking here. This is uh, as he's. Um, I think the reference was he's getting ready to do a funeral. That uh, he he's, uh, talks about um, did it about heightening the pleasure and the surprise that the. the the, the, the gladness uh, and to the point that um, they will eat and drink abundantly and swim in an ocean of love and eternally swallow up uh, in the in, um, infinitely bright and infinitely mild and sweet beams of divine love. That's what it, it, it's not a bleak. It's the next eternal life is is we're going to be with Christ in, in the light as a total different picture of what someone that's not with Christ would be totally opposite. 
Yeah, like you said, David Brainerd's funeral being the context here, and so what was a very sad moment becomes a word of celebration, like you just described there. Words that we don't always say, infinitely mild and sweet beams of divine love. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how you would have said it. So, Sandra, I want to pass to you, bringing in that key verse then, Ephesians 2, 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. So what, according to that verse, is the point of heaven? How would you describe heaven to someone who's never heard of it? The point of heaven and eternity is to enjoy God's grace and kindness. And the way I would describe heaven would be if you think about all the difficulties and struggles that you've had here on earth, heaven is the exact opposite. Heaven shows the goodness of God through his grace. This is one of my favorite sections of the chapter. I've got a big highlight around the side and arrows pointing to it. And he describes it this way on page 210. He says, those of us who have been pretty squeaky clean will get there one day and realize more than ever how deeply sin and self-righteousness and pride and all kinds of willful subconscious rebellions were way down deep inside us. And how all that sends God's grace and kindness soaring. And we too will stand astonished at how great his heart is for us. I love that picture there. That's what we'll experience in heaven. Well, and and, uh, to close out the chapter, uh, an interesting question for you, Will, and then one for you, Michael. Uh, Will, Jonathan Edwards gave a great quote when he says, those who were Jesus' saints would swim in the ocean of love and be eternally swallowed up in the infinitely bright and infinitely mild and sweet beams of divine love. What did he mean when he said that? So I think Dave Hartley answers it the best, but it also took me back to uh, um, a set of scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter um, that, that really came to mind. And the quote by Dave Hartley is this, the joy of heaven is that we will enjoy Jesus' unfettered and undiluted heart forevermore. And I thought that that was a perfect answer for this question but what it really made me think of is this this eternal love just like we talked about, I talked about in my first question the eternal love of Jesus and so it took me to 1 Corinthians 13 13 so now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love and I was talking with a group of young men and I was like have you ever wondered why the greatest is love and so I told him I was like in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about, you know, the partial and the temporal, and then it talks about the eternal. Um, I said, love is the only eternal one out of all those things. I said, our faith in Jesus is replaced with reality. Mm-hmm. Our hope in Christ is replaced with face-to-face with our Lord and Savior. But the love of Jesus abides for all eternity. Yeah, That's good. Well, and so Orland closes the chapter out, Michael, by saying that Ephesians 2 7 is telling us that our death is not an end but a beginning, not a wall but a door, not an exit but an entrance. What does this mean for those not in Christ as well as for those who are in Christ? You know, the false gospel that's preached by some is this is your best life now. And that is a false gospel because we're not promised that this is our best life now. In fact, we look at Scripture and we see the suffering of believers. We see that in Paul. We see that in the New Testament the church as the 
explosion of growth was happening, they were persecuted. They were scattered. And so your best life now is for those who are not in Christ. Because what awaits us, as Ray pointed out, from your life group lesson, is hell real? Yes, it is. Because it's a holy God. And there is eternal judgment. But the beauty for believers is this is the worst we will ever experience because of what awaits us. And so we endure hardship. We walk through difficult times, loss of loved ones, sickness, suffering. And yet, as we so often share, when we gather at the loss of a loved one, we grieve in a different way. We have hope because of what awaits us in eternity. And so I love that perspective, the promise of heaven that awaits us. So that's what Ortland points out. For those not in Christ, this life is the best it will ever get. So encouragement for all of us is that we enjoy the daily abiding relationship that we have in Christ in this life and for eternity. My hope is that we've grasped a little bit more of the depth of God's love for us. I think as we've walked through this, we've truly been able to see the heart of Christ, that he's not disappointed in us, frustrated with us, angry with us. He loves us. As we sin, his grace increases. And so we get to enjoy his presence. And so I say it's been a great journey. I've gained a lot. Our recordings have stretched out over a period of time. So maybe now trying to bring it all together, these last two chapters have helped us to reflect on the message. I think Portland did a great job in summarizing the message of the book in these final two chapters. And I pray that our conversations have encouraged all of our staff, but also those that have been able to listen as we've gone through the journey. Our prayer, we want to see lives changed by Christ. We can't do that. Christ alone can change lives. And that happens through encountering Him, enjoying Him daily, and then living out that calling to exalt Him through our everyday life. Thank you for joining us for this journey. We look forward to hearing how God used this in your growth in Christ.